Hi guys, this is the third and final part of my conversation with Fugazi producer Ted Nicely. Once again, if you didn't listen to the past episodes, he has a medical condition that's been complicated by the COVID-19 situation, and if you want to read about his situation, there's a GoFundMe page that's linked in the show notes. So please check that out and enjoy the conversation. So after Repeater, you you didn't work on Steady Diet and sort of famously the bands quote-unquote produced themselves. But I guess they initially had wanted you to, to do it. It's just that there was a scheduling conflict? That's another one of these kind of mythic things. Um, it wasn't pastry school uh, or anything. It was just that they all of a sudden they, they had become a a really big band, right? Yeah. Uh, without getting too deep into it, I just, I just didn't feel that. I mean, I, I definitely feel that I brought something to all the records that I've worked on with them. Uh, you know, I wasn't just some guy who was like sitting on the corner, you know, <laughs> saying uh, good job. Yeah. You know, down at the, uh, or, organic eatery you know and hey why don't you come in uh and and so anyways i just kind of thought well you know let's all go our separate ways here it's cool and and it didn't have anything to do with pastry school and and so then they did steady diet and um you know i don't don't think anybody was very happy with it no my understanding was yeah they their experience was it was a little difficult in that they they wa- they were sort of too polite to each other. They didn't want to make executive decisions to tell another member to you know turn their part down or vice versa, just because that it sort of seemed awkward to do that. That that's what I heard too, and that's kind of why I ended up in there anyways. You know, I didn't think about it too much then. I mean, I kind of I kind of thought, well, gee, man that's fucked up. And I knew Gabe was extremely unhappy. No one was happy. I kind of don't understand, you know I mean? I, I didn't particularly understand the whole, the whole thing, but I wasn't there, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why, uh, Don didn't jump in maybe a little more, but he's a very kind of, Don doesn't want to get involved if, if he's not, you know, he just doesn't want to step on anyone's toes. I, I personally, I find it a problem with DC bands that I've worked with, been around. I think people end up watering. I think people end up watering themselves down because everybody's too nice. And by that, I don't mean that you have to be rude at all. You know, I, I you know, no, no matter what said in these various books and stuff about Ted being a taskmaster and all this stuff. No, you know, I just don't, I never read that actually. Is that, is that what you feel your reputation is? Um, in some places I've been called that. Interesting. Okay. Real pain in the ass. You know, I mean like, (laughs) you know, when the internet first happened, a lot of these guys that I worked with didn't particularly think I'm ever going to hear anything. (laughs) I'm ever going to read anything. You know, you know, someone announced, like, uh, I, I met this friend of mine, um, Bill Corbett, 
uh, on um, uh, Twitter. He'd been like uh, top dessert chef in America and all this stuff. Really great guy. Loves Fugazi. And um, he's like, hey, Ted, you know, Ted Nicely's here, blah, 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 blah. And by the way, there's this great interview <laughs> with Ian Mackay where he talks about, you know, them making repeaters. <laughs> and man, I read this. I read this interview and I thought like, Jesus, this is kind of fucked up. <laughs> there was some really kind of weird stuff in it. And this was well after we had made those records. This was after In On The Kill Taker. And, and I, I didn't know a thing about Twitter. I don't, I don't think maybe Ian did either. And I read it. And I, was, I called up the editor and I said, next time you guys do a interview, can you fact check some stuff, you know? <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you, man, the thing about this new age of writing is I hate it when people don't fact check. It just really doesn't give anybody a chance to, to shoot down these things that get a little bit out of hand, you know? I mean, the, the waiting room thing has, you know, been going on for years now, and there's other <laughs> stuff. You know, but, but what I was going to say is, you know, once the internet kind of got popular and used... Um, you know, I'd be on, I wouldn't be even looking for stuff. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook or something and I see AV doing an article about this record. I happen to do it, you know, and I'm like, Hmm, I never knew they felt like that. <laughs> you know, no one ever told me, you know, and I'm sure they would have, but you know, sometimes, you know, time gives you a bit of a jab, you know? Let's bring it back to where we were. Yeah, so I'm sorry. Which is all to say that you didn't produce Steady Diet, but uh, the band weren't necessarily uh, excited about the results. Um, and right. But, but so you, they came back to you. They were like, "We need you, Ted, uh, for this next one." Well, you know, it was just, it was just like, um, he, we were all still friends, you know. Yeah. Maybe there was a little bit of awkwardness here and there, or something, but not really. And I was living in New York. Guy and Brendan came over and had, uh, like, uh, I fixed breakfast for everybody. It was bacon brioche and all this junk. And just had, you know, fantastic time. And I think we probably went to see some shows together. Uh, and and um, and Guy called me right before I was getting to start a record. Maybe I was in Texas or something. And and he said, we're, we're going up to Chicago and recording with Steve. And I was like, really, you know, and, and this was right after, uh, the Jesus lizard goat album did come really big. And, uh, I knew that they were big fans of it, especially E and, um, I guess all of them. And, and I said, wow, I'll never see you again. You know, not that, there was really any intention of us working together again. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and anyways, uh, and I didn't mean that snarky. I just meant it, you know? And, and so, uh, I think I was walking in from doing that record like a month later or three weeks later. And, and my wife at the time said, uh, Ian and gear really trying to get a hold of you. 
And and I was like, yeah, what's up? No, no, you're gonna have to talk to him. And so I slowly got the the word that the Albini sessions maybe didn't go off great. And um, they wanted me to listen to them at first. And and so I listened to him, and I actually campaigned for keeping some of this stuff. Interesting. Can you remember like and, what and stuff? Facet Squared was one song that I was really, really knocked out by. Yeah. I loved it. I loved the vibe of it. I loved the energy, even though it was probably slower than our version. Um, it was, um, it just, it just had that thing, you know, and I love that. Um, I think there was there a version of Cassavetes on that tape. I haven't listened to it much. Yes. Uh, I think there was, um, I really liked, I really liked that because that, that, that version kind of informed my, um, approach to it. That was a part of, um, Joe Gross's book that I thought was amazing was, you know, it's, it was said that you pretty much wrote the intro to Cassavetti's the drum intro, which is an amazing part. Oh, well, didn't he do something kind of like it on the, on the Albini tape? He's just kind of like doing boom, 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 ba-da, ba-dum, boom, 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 ba. No, no, he was doing, he was doing more of a, of a beat that went with the bam, bam, right? <laughs> I, I, the, the way I liked it was, um, you know, exactly kind of as uh, Brendan explained it was that um, the the uh, he, the beginning of it has this really loose kind of jazzy, crazy attack. And and that's the way that I thought was the perfect intro, because it's such a kind of a spazzy slithery song yes and um and brendan has that really kind of loose limbed crazy attack on his kit you know and it just it just seemed like it would be the the thing so yeah i did kind of like orchestrate it in a way i mean i was like yeah i gotta do you know the the you know the way it sounds but (laughs) you know i was just saying keep keep doing what I heard or saw you do on that one thing, you know. Right. Don't dump that. That's fantastic. That's really interesting about Facet Squared, though, because that's like the the version that ended up on the record. Such a standout track to me. I think you guys did a fantastic job on that. It, maybe it's the kind of thing where you you just really heard something in that demo version and you sort of like brought it to life, whatever was in your head after hearing it on the demo. But. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I uh, originally I didn't. I didn't. Originally, I didn't think that they were going to dump the record, you know, and that Albini wanted them to. Um, from what I've read, uh, you know, I mean, I thought that there were things that maybe could be kept. Uh, you know, I didn't know because, uh, to be honest with you, when it all first happened, I was I was really concerned that they were going to get caught up even worse in that kind of thing that Nirvana got caught up in when he did their album. And, you know, there was all this hubby pubby talk about, you know, the powers that be come in there and fuck everything up. And, but when the band themselves say it didn't cut it, it's a different thing. 
you right. know, and I didn't, I just didn't want there to be a backlash on the band. But the, the one thing I, I, I have to admit, I, I wasn't sure that the two styles were going to mesh really great because of the, the way Steve approaches recording and the way other people do, you know, just, I mean, I'm a fan of his more of on a musical standpoint, but there's, there's records I like a lot. Um, that he's done, but not necessarily, you know, they're probably the ones he hates. Yeah, maybe. Like he rewrote something ages ago about doing the Pixies record. And like, that's a record I always loved. And apparently he didn't like it very much. That surprised me. Yeah, because he didn't, he didn't like them asking, asking for direction <laughs> and, and, and stuff. But you know, Hey, you know, everybody's got a different thing. I, I I was, you know, I mean, it's just that Fugazi's a very dynamic group, and even when they're loud, they're dynamic, and and so anyways, it just came down to, they wanted to record the whole thing, top to bottom, and I said, well, I'm in, because, well, a lot of it was because I knew Guy especially, it, it was going to destroy him if they didn't, like, if they put out something that wasn't better than steady diet right and i don't mean that to sound weird i just you know i mean they all had to be happy with their next record you know you got to step back up and then also i'll be honest with you i had made a bunch of records by that time i was really thinking a lot about like loving being in the room with those guys because it's it's a it's just a different type of experience. Everybody comes to the party and, and delivers. And, and I was just like, I got, I got, you know, man, it sure would be nice to feel that. And then all of a sudden it happened. Are you just talking you know? in terms of their, like they would come to these sessions with like really ready to play and, and have their parts done, like drilled excellently and knew exactly what to do. No, not like that. It's just exciting to be in a room with people that really, really can play together. Right, so more of a group cohesion sort of a sort of a thing. The group cohesion thing. It's it's like you run the tape and there's a take. Yeah. Hmm. You go back in, you fix a bass note, you you fix a cymbal hit, uh, something like that. You know, I mean, it's just not a big. Now let's go back to the beginning and tear everything down and la la la. You know, I mean, just very confident. Even even though on going in to do Kill Taker, I mean, they've been trying to do it for a while. And, and, you know, now they're going to be dragging around this Albini talking point and shit. And I just wanted to go in there and help them make a fantastic record. And, 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 and we did, I mean, I think we did. So what do you think, like to a, to a person with a, with an untrained ear who like, who listens to the Albini demos or, or tracks or whatever we're calling them, and then listens to the finished product on Killtaker. Like, how do you how do you explain how do you account for the difference in sound? Uh, like, what do you think made the biggest differences? The particularly the way it was recorded, how how you mic it, because his, I mean, from what I've read, his whole sounds built around, you know, micing the walls and everything. He's got a very big acoustical space, uh, you know, with a lot of brick and stuff like that. Hmm. And, you know, I'm, I don't know. Are you, are you a PJ Harvey fan? Yeah, I like PJ Harvey, sure. 
did you like um, To Bring You My Love, which yes. was the album after Rid of Me? Yes. Well, that to me kind of explains it all. You know, I mean, Rid of Me, yeah, it was really vicious. It was really this. It was cacophonous and all that stuff. But if you went to see her on that tour, I think all those songs sounded immensely better. And and then when you listen to the dynamics of To Bring You My Love, uh, you know, it's just such a totally different experience. And 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 sometimes, like I said, I don't, I don't want to turn this into a rag on anybody's shit. But... Um, no, I, I have to say, too, I really like Rid of Me also. I just like <laughs> like them both in different ways. I, yeah, I, and I do in places. It, it becomes very wearing quick. Yeah, it is a bit of a it is a bit of a fatiguing experience. Yeah, some people say that about my records, but but I you know I try to instill some type of dynamic and stuff, and it's just his approach to to the way stuff should sound, you know. And and I when when you record stuff with a lot of ambience, then you can never get turn anything down or turn it up. It can only get louder because that's you know you'll bring the drums up and hear the drums the way they sound the best and then you bring the guitars up and then the drums disappear and then you bring the vocal up and everything disappears hmm. you know it's, it's a very tough way to record and i've had experience in trying kind of that way but I, you know I, I you know you just can't do it you can't you can't record with too much clank clank sound you know i mean everyone <laughs> everyone listens to the drum sounds on led zeppelin records well you know they were recorded in a in a in a huge uh, room and then you can listen to something like the drum sound on an xtc record <clears throat> like black sea or or even you know in a completely different genre of music you know the phil collins drum break and uh, you know in the air tonight and I saw the Stone Room at Townhouse Studios in, in London because I mastered there a lot. And and um, the room where those drums are recorded is dinky. I mean, it's small, man. Hmm. The Stone Room turned out to be like a closet. So, you know, and that's where they got that famous Steve Lillywhite, you know, Peter Gabriel, third album, Phil Collins, XTC drum sound. Anyways, you know... Uh, I, I when uh, the thing that attracted me most about Facet Squared does my voice sound radically different now? It sounds a bit different. You're a little more distant because I I walked into a space with a little more acoustic. <laughs> you're really demonstrating what you're saying about the uh, the the space <laughs> making such a huge difference. <laughs> so so anyways, uh, we just zero it in on it, and I I the thing I was going to say about Facet Squared was that uh, what really attracted me was that bass kind of thing that, you know, it's just Joe and 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 uh, Brendan in that intro primarily. You know, there's a little bit of guitar for like after about eight bars of them. And I really loved that bass sound. And when we recorded the song, I really wanted to get that same type of bass sound. It was no problem. It was Joe, you know. Yeah, so it wasn't like some kind of technique. So kind of grindy and uh, just growly. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And um, but one thing I think 
I've, I've, I brought to the Fugazi records is that I think the sequencing of all of them worked really well. And the, um, especially the openings and the closings. And those were things I was kind of really particular about. And I, and I, I'm lucky that the band agreed with me on it. And, um, and I think, you know, all of them have worked that way from the way the first record opened where, um, uh, waiting room went right into burning, I think. And, uh, and then on repeater, then on repeater, you had, um, you know, uh, turnover repeater and then, uh, Brendan number one, which for some reason really reminds me of the, have you ever seen give me, give me shelter? Um, I've watched by the clips. I haven't seen the whole thing. I don't think there's a scene where the Jefferson airplane are playing, <laughs> you know, and, and the lead singer gets hit by a pool cue and all this stuff. And there's this thing <laughs> that, that, that he does on the guitar that, that really reminds me of the Jefferson airplane. It's a drum riff and him doing this. <laughs> it sounds like, it sounds like that, and I'm, I'm, I always think about that when I hear it. I always think, God, it sounds so San Francisco, Monterey, you know, <laughs> or Altamont, you know, and um, and so you know, I, I think sequencing is really important. And on Kill Taker, the way the first three songs just really attack you, you know, like Facet Square opens, and it was it was my idea to kind of do that whole um, panning thing with the guitars, uh, you know, the, the toggle switch, you know, and I really kind of, you know, it's stupid, but I was always giving them, I was always saying, you know, man, if you guys did videos, <laughs> video for this would be incredible. It's you true. Know, it's like, true. And, and they, they would just start like gagging laughing their asses off wanting to kill me and i'd say you know this would be perfect because there would be the stage dark and then all of a sudden you'd hear that <laughs> and it pan across the thing and then when gee when gee starts that like a one of those super trooper spots would hit him on top of an ego ramp <laughs> like there was, there was like <laughs> And by this time, like, Brendan's throwing himself across a table trying to strangle me. But I'm still explaining how the greatness of it and how the kids would love it. It's also, you guys are all wearing feather boas. Yeah. <laughs> Doing our Freddie Mercury best. Sunglasses. And, and I was like, I was just like, I was just like, man, you know, this is, this is like, I have to say it, I wasn't a big fan. But the way I heard that thing, I thought a Deep Purple Machine had the intro. Just, just you know how that thing starts. I mean, it's a very, very vague reference, but I just kind of thought about like listening to Made in Japan and thinking about. I wasn't a big Deep Purple fan or anything. Yeah, same. It's just a certain energy. What's interesting is I was just thinking about how Facet Squared is a little bit of a mm-hmm. is almost a little bit of an echo of Turnover, right? It's turnover opens Repeater. It's this sort of like ambient like sort of swelling guitar note the, and then the swelling guitar thing yeah yeah this that happens and then bass and drums come in and do this this sort of locked in riffing it's a little bit the same on facet square Tribal. it's like it's like a, an updated 
uh, badassified turnover intro, but uh, like cranked up to eleven. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly a way to look at it. It's just <laughs> you know when his vocal starts, it's just the shit. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just such a it's just such a song, and then a public witness program following it the way it begins, and that whole middle part that's like a bike race or something, uh, you know, with the hand claps, which was Key's idea, by the way. Uh, and, um, I don't know, man, that, that thing just, for me, that's the most absolutely consistent record they've made that I had anything to do with. Yeah. I absolutely agree about the sequencing of the last song on Killtaker, no exception, definitely like last chance for a slow dance. It ends the record in such a wonderful way. That's something we were talking about recently mm. on the podcast was it that's a little bit of a shame with you know 13 songs and with the repeater plus three songs i mean they're all such great songs on those if you get them on like cd uh the way they're packaged but it it's it a little bit ruins the closing song like glue man is an amazing closer shut the door also just really great um so to put more songs on after that it's it's a little bit of a shame but because yeah the, the original sequences were so great yeah, I you know it was it just seems to every song shines, and I think every song in that the, the, Killtaker for me was the kind of record that when it ended, I wanted to just start playing it again. That that's like um, you know I thought that was cool. You know I mean I love that um, Venus Luxury Number One Baby by Girls Against Boys was kind of like the same thing, but hmm. I you know the sequencing thing I think was important. What some other cool stuff. Uh, the um, I'm glad that we saved the feedback break and 23 beats off because that was like going along really really well and then the feedback died and everybody was like kind of what the fuck <laughs> and and I was like okay we do this you know roll roll back the tape done and let's get it to there and i said guys just start playing along with it as soon as you hear and know where you are and i'll punch in the tape when when i think we've got a good moment here oh that's and interesting so okay it was really it was really serendipitous that when i punched in it was really seamless because the guitars were just at that same place and then we were able to or maybe even in a better place, and then we were able to carry it out all the way to the end. Because I had wondered about the feedback sections, like how much exactly is planned out in a structured way, and how much of it is just them sort of feeling the moment. But it sounds like from what you're saying... Just them, just them feeling the moment. Yeah. yeah. It's, is that what you were going to say? Well, it's just something that I was wondering about, because it seems like a very inexact science to do that the feedback stuff that Fugazi does. It uh, doesn't seem like you can do it the same way twice. Well, it's in, it's it can be excruciating doing it with no matter who it is and what, no matter what kind of master they are. But it was just um, they were dialed in for that, you know. I mean, they were just ready. So, you know, the reason I was really confident that we could just go back, drop in, was because. I, I just had this feeling that they were going to do it and do it great. Big results, big results on this record. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, it was the same thing. Like, you know, I felt like on 
on repeater, Ian's vocal on Shut the Door was very, um, was a new kind of Ian, you know, yeah. where he was yeah. emoting tenderly. And, and then on Returning the Screw, I kind of thought the same thing, you know, and that first three, uh, I guess that first minute and a half where he's just really singing quiet and there's barely anything going on behind him except for a loud, a loud kind of snare trill every eighth beat or something and um, every 16 and, and anyways, uh, in order to get that really, because he was like right up on the mic to get that really close sound and every piece of, you know, moisture in his mouth and, you know, everything's there and it just wouldn't sound good, you know? And I was like, okay, well, just let me punch in on the beginning of this word. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because it it came up for debate and that I was a perfectionist, again, jazz master. But I was like, look, man, you can't do a vocal like that where everything's all smacky and spitty and shit. You know, it's, I, you're doing a great vocal, but you're, you're, you know, your your instrument, you know, your mouth is getting in the way. Right. <laughs> you know, the spit and stuff. So I just kind of cleaned up some of that stuff. And it, I think it's a beautiful vocal. I mean, this, that, that intro to that song is amazing in the kind of pastoral guitars before all hell breaks loose <clears throat> um i don't i don't really know from vocal mics or anything like that but i wonder for the for the gearheads out there is there a particular like mic you would always use with uh with fugazi or some like go-to gear not really i i think don probably understood that generally i always use a um with everybody i've worked with it seems that we use a good mic and, you know, I mean, like something quality condenser, tube, whatever. And then we use like a 57 or a 58, a sure, you know, the kind of thing you'd see on a stage. And we mix it together. Yeah. And they both end up on the track? Yeah. Usually it kind of has a, they, they have a differing quality. As long as they're in phase, there's not going to be any problem. You know, you kind of get this warmth thing and, you know, you get all the, the, the 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 precision of the tube mic or the condenser mic or whatever and then you get the kind of steady rock solid thing of a sure s and 57 you know it's hmm. just there you know and the, the other thing i think is to get the compression right on the voice some people don't like to record with you know any compression i i like that because it in the phones, it gives them a certain type of sound. You know, they can kind of hear their voice hitting it. And and um, it just, it'll react to how you sing, but it, it kind of, it gets, uh, you know, intimate. Hmm. And then we'll kind of relax when you get louder, you know. Right. Um, they al- it always has to be interesting vocally. Yeah, I I think that relates to what you were saying about thinking of their songs as pop songs. Like I think you, uh, obviously they're they're sort of not that, but I think you give them that treatment and like sort of respect the vocals and things like that in the way in a way that a producer would a pop song. Um, and they're they're always yeah. I mean I, I you know I want to respect everything, but I mean the vocal they're going to be hearing. I want it to be 
be I mainly I want it to be something that they'll like. <laughs> that's that's the end thing. I mean, if they hear a shitty vocal, you know, they're gonna be like, well, that that sucks. You know, I, it's it's got to be good. And, you know, as far as the the song aspect, the song's a song. It's it, like I said way back in the beginning. You know, it's got to be a great song. I mean, if it's a great song, it deserves great treatment. And I don't know. I try not to be too. Try to give everything the same level of uh, attention. Some things don't need as much. I mean, someone like Joe, someone like me when I was playing bass in a band. You know, I mean. Nobody ever really asked me to do anything different because I was doing, I guess, what I needed to do, and he certainly was. Is, right. but um, but other things, you know, they're they're different animals, especially vocals and drums. So I guess uh, going into the future, um, this Killtaker was your last record with Fugazi, and from then on, they produced themselves. I guess with some like additional production credits by by Don. Do you feel like you you sort of gave them what they needed, and they they sort of took took off from that point and did the sort of job that you would? Do you, do you ever listen to those later records and feel like uh, there's something you would have done differently if you had been involved? I no, I don't listen to. I mean, I've listened to their records that I haven't done, uh, but I don't listen past a certain point. I find it very hard to listen to bands that I've worked with and then not work with unless it moves on or something i i don't know you know i mean i kind of feel like it's not that i didn't do it because i mean Killtaker was a return for like one record i never expected to do another record after that mm-hmm. and i wouldn't have unless some particular things might have changed but i think on the other records i just don't feel as much how can i put it um Maybe I'm not listening to the right songs, you know, this sense of urgency. <laughs> yeah, they, they certainly evolved into a different type of bands, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, like, Red Medicine, I think it was that album, maybe it was Endgame, it's kind of reminded me of Television. Do you know that band? Yeah, I love Television. Yeah, you know, I mean, it kind of reminded me of that, some of the stuff off of Marky Moon or the, the next record, in a way. Um, because, you know... That, that song, um, what's the song on repeater about I got caught with my hand in the till? Right, two beats off. Right, exactly. And and there were aspects of Guy's vocal that I thought were kind of both Berlinish and Richard Hellish in a way. Um, don't ask me why. Uh, you know, it's just kind of the, the, the weird kind of jumpy aspect of the vocal. Um, but yeah, one of those records after me, I thought was kind of television-ish. For some reason, I think it's Red Medicine. I don't know, it's just hard to, it's just hard to listen to that stuff. I, you know, I... So it's more that they, they sort of went in a direction that you, you didn't connect with as much with the songs? Well, I knew after, I knew after Killtaker, I mean, I felt I knew that they were not going to go down that road again, but... You know, I'm down to go anywhere. You know, I'm I, I don't I don't really categorize myself as a producer of this particular type of music or the other. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the last thing I theoretically did was this band, the New Rising Suns, that has the lead singer from Texas is the reason, 
the drummer from Into Another, which was kind of like a New York post-metal band. I, there's another name for that genre. And and then the guitarist was from uh, uh, a variety of things uh, they played with. And and then I, I ended up playing bass on it because it wasn't really a, a, a steady bass player in the band mm-hmm. yet. That's That's the last thing I did um that just came out in november it was actually recorded back in 97 but it sounds like we just finished it and ever since then you've been working as a chef yeah when i wasn't kind of brought down by this back thing um yeah i i I just went into i i took a little bit of time off when i was in new york i was one of three people on the short list to do the the green day record with minority on it Oh, wow. And I went up to meet them. And while it didn't go bad, it didn't go great, I guess. I didn't do it. And in a way, I, um, you know, I think it was because I didn't really exude. I I was really kind of on the fence about it. I didn't know what to do. You know, I, you know, I liked Green Day singles. I, I was really impressed when they did Good Riddance. I really love this band Billy Joe put together after Green Day or in one of those spaces where they were taking time off and they were working on, they were broadcasting these, or not broadcasting, but they were playing these videos of these live shows. And man, it was amazing music. I would have jumped on that in a second. But, you know, if if I'm not sure about something, I don't really know how to, how to act. Yeah. You know? I mean, A, tremendously big group. They're making major decision to work with a different producer or produce it themselves. Uh, you know, they're kind of entering into a new musical phase. They've been through a lot of weird, you know, stuff that bands have become huge do. And, but I, you know, when my management said to me, hey, um, Green Day are interested in meeting you. What am I supposed to say? I'm not interested in meeting them. I'm interested. Of course I'm interested in meeting them. But you know, I I just felt kind of uh, that I that they knew I didn't I, I didn't really know what I thought about it, you know. Right. So after I did that, after I got back from that, I was a little bit wounded. And I, I in New York I lived right across from a restaurant I, I went to and I always wanted to work there with this James Beard Award winning chef named Douglas Rodriguez who cooked this kind of pan Latino he, he came he he um, coined the Nuevo Latino thing and at the same time I used to eat at Leal where Anthony Bourdain used to eat a lot right this I mean uh, cooked that he was the executive chef and and I am um, Bourdain and I um, I used to eat there a lot it was before Kitchen Confidential came out. Uh, and I went up there one afternoon and did like, wow, you know, I said to the bartender, I was having lunch. I sat at the bar. I was looking at the New York Times. And and I said, uh, do you think they're looking for a pastry chef? And he went back there and talked to Bourdain. This is before I read his book. And it was like he called he called pastry chefs the neurosurgeons of pastry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm cooking like pains in the ass. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so anyways, I, I saw this ad for Chicama and I knew that this restaurant that, that Douglas had been at called Pantry had moved or had ended. And so I went to this place called Chicama. That's like the, the coastal section of Peru. And, and so I went there and I got a gig. So I took nine, ten months off playing music, I mean, producing music. And I, I you know, I may have recorded a little something in there, but I worked there and I loved it. And it was, it was just tremendous, tremendous experience. And it kind of recharged me a little bit. But, you know, um, it was kind of winding down around that time. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting career move, but it's kind of a like a change for a more it's like a real classic job, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Nobody says the butcher, the record <laughs> producer, the candlestick maker, you know. There's a lot of career changers. I mean there's yeah. a lot of musicians in the music world. I mean, that guy uh who worked at um oh god, what's it called Delfina or something, who it's kinda I don't know, I think the two Positions jive. I just needed to recharge. Yeah, I, I wanted to get away from it for a while, and then I did another record. In the meantime, I, I met the person I moved down here with, and ended up marrying. And I just, you know, I mean, the music business collapsed as soon as I got down here, which I is one of the reasons I came down here, besides being in love and and down here being uh, Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico, yes. Right. It isn't down here, is it? It's kind of across here. <laughs> uh, I guess it is down if you're in New York or whatever. But um, And so from from here on out, uh, let's, let's assume everything goes swimmingly with your finances and your health from here on out. What's the dream? Uh, open your own bakery or something like that? Don't know. I really don't. You know, I've been working on this memoir. I met someone um tommy keens old uh or not old a former publicist uh who um worked with him and after tommy passed away we uh you know kind of became good friends and he's kind of become a publicist come manager come good friend certainly and uh he got my website together He's kind of coordinated. I have a group on Facebook called a page on Facebook or whatever called a Ted Nicely producer, right? Where I kind of pick stuff up that I produced and play it, you know, put up a video or just the song and um, kind of explain what went on behind it or spotlight. I've worked a lot internationally. So there's a lot of things that people didn't hear that, that were actually really not just good, but big things for me. I, I produced a band in, in France and Bordeaux from Bordeaux called Noir Désir. And I did two studio albums and a mix and fix live album that were all like, you know, I mean, really big records. Hmm. And, and then I did the trip and Daisy record, which probably a lot of people who like Gazi would never, ever listen to, but, we kind of had a medium top 40 hit with that. And, you know, I've, and, and I've done a lot of French work. I've done some work in England, although um, it's not, I think I only did one English band. We recorded one of the Noir Désir albums in London, 
in the uh, outskirts of London, actually. An Irish group called Future Kings of Spain that I worked with, really, really good, that ended up getting nominated for a, uh, a Meteor Award that year, um, which is kind of Ireland's version of the, the Grammys. You know, I, I, and mainly, you know, it's just, it's just cool to have the, these things like the website that I end up putting the stuff that I post on the Facebook group to uh, Matt and I do. And, and um, people get to see and hear the other kind of music that I like and, you know, or, you know, the other things that I do because I like music, period. So Yeah, well, I will definitely put a link to that website in the show notes so listeners can click on that, check out what you're up to. And absolutely, if you... If you happen to finish that memoir soon and, and sort of get it out there in some format, please get back in touch and I'll share that with listeners too. That sounds like really interesting. Reading. Yeah, that 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 can be some really good fun because <laughs> a lot of interesting stuff happened. <laughs> some of it was, I mean, it was all funny. We'll have to talk about it when it when it happened. Yeah, we've been on for a long time. Well, uh, well, thanks so much for uh, taking all this time to talk to me, Ted. Uh, it's really enlightening. Cool to hear your side of things throughout the years. And uh, it, an honor to have you, uh, a real big part of the Fugazi story. Uh, so, yeah, oh, Well, thank many you thanks. so much. I really appreciate it. It's been really enjoyable. And, um, hey, and, uh, uh, say... Thanks for the opportunity. You're very welcome. And say thanks to Matt for, uh, for getting us hooked up and coordinating stuff. Um, Absolutely, and, uh, sir. Yeah, I'll I'll share the GoFundMe, and I I hope things start turning around for you, man. Oh yeah, everything's everything's gonna be good. I think thanks so, so too. much. I really appreciate <laughs> it. And let's talk again soon. Let's do. Hey, have a great day. You too, sir. Bye. This is my last